So I don't really know where the sheets are. I left them here, and uh, they're not here. I don't know. Not the sheets for the announcement, but what we were learning together. I looked already. You can look again, Karen. That'll be great. Hi, everybody. So, um, what do you want to talk about tonight? Since we don't have the sheets, I'm not going to just teach you. Not if none of the people have the sheets. So, did you find them? Those look like them. Something. Something. Wow, Karen. Please. There we go. All right, who wants to hand them out? Karen did it already. Karen already did. There, aren't, there still aren't that many, actually. These are all the old ones. These are the same as the ones you've been using or new ones? Um, like, no, these are the ones you've been using. I didn't make any new ones tonight. Okay, so if we have our old ones, we have. Okay, a lot of, lot of, uh, lot of energy. I, I want to, um, no, don't worry about the sheets. Forget about the sheets. What a waste of energy. Don't worry about the sheets. What, what needs to happen tonight? That's the question. What do you want to I didn't, no, don't throw it back on me. That's, that's an application. I'm throwing it to you. What do you want? I want the wisest thoughts that you can come up with. Oh, goodness. I'm not interested in being wise. I'm not interested. I don't want to be a wise guy. I want to be a spiritual gangster. That's what I want to be. That's what I want to be. I want to be a spiritual gangster. That's me. That's what I want to be. I want to, I want to roam the streets for God. And, uh, how crazy a world is it, huh? It's such a crazy world. Olam hafuchar isi. Says in the Gemara. Although I, I see a crazy world. But I want to suggest something about what the future is talking about. If we continue what we just were talking about in terms of how do we heal Jacob and Esau within ourselves? You know, how do we get that together and work on that for the sake of Well, first you'd have to tell me where you know... How do you know you have a Jacob and Esau in yourself? That's what I was figuring out when you were talking about it. It's like, oh, we're all born with clothes. It's part of us that's the enemy that we're just trying to always get away from it. Yeah. We just can't believe we're talking. And, you know, we both have, we have it inside ourselves. And then if we look toward it, it welcomes us beautifully. And then we say, I'll be back. We really don't want to go there again. So it seems like the whole story 
could be related to what we're all dealing with in some way. So how do we make better friends with the shadow so that we can help this world that we're in? Because that's what it seems to me we're saying. I mean, I, I, I don't know necessarily that every conflict can be reduced to the, the not just the abstraction, but every conflict is, is reducible to some projected other necessarily, meaning that if you haven't worked through your other, your inner other, then you project it on the outside other. I think that that's you know I think that that's part of a very complex matrix of, of a nexus of causes and effects. And I think that we are again I, I want to say this to, to, to my students so you don't it's really important to me that that I'm not teaching you something that I don't believe in or let me say it differently that you're not walking away with something that I didn't say or you're inferring from what I didn't say what I didn't say. <laughs> Meaning. It's not all about the inside. And it's not all about the outside. Right. It's not either or. It's not, um, it's not the whole world is, is narcissistically held by a thread that I happen to be, you know, my own intention holds one end and the world is on the other end. And if I have the right intention, then the whole world will just bend towards my, my narcissistic will. That's the secret. Anybody know the book, The Secret, or The Phenomenon of the Secret? Yeah. Let me tell you something. It's not a secret. It's stupid. <laughs> One piece of it is true. One small piece of it is true. And a whole big piece of it isn't true. The piece of it that's true is that how you think, that's your life. Right? Mm -hmm. But not how you think, that's your financial life. Meaning, if you write a check for a million dollars and put it into your pocket and then only have good thoughts, the law of attraction will, will you know, manifest for you your, your, your intention. It's a very, that's a kind of philosophy that is, has the kind of developmental maturity of a, of a four-year-old or a three-year-old that hasn't yet fully understood that the outside and the inside are not actually, you know, step on a crack and break my brother's back. Right? We, we, there are religious doctrines that say that if you have sexual thoughts, you know, there are tsunamis that are, are happening because of your licentiousness, you know. Man, I'm telling you, I, I know a whole group of kids from high school that probably caused a couple thousand tsunamis. <laughs> but it, it ain't true. It ain't true. Meaning, the doctrine of inner, the inner contemplative life and the relationship between thoughts, feelings, and actions is, is very, it's obvious, it's common sense. You didn't need Freud to come along and teach us that, that our thoughts are, are powerful and that our thoughts are, are, so much of our inner world is governed by the thought patterns that we have. We certainly know now that it's much more complex than that because there are more primal levels where thought is not actually yet emergent feeling tones in the body that themselves are even more embedded than thought on. But be that as it may, the secret was a phenomenon in America, right? I mean, the secret is everything. Because it landed in a world of narcissistic, self-indulgence, spirituality, where, where someone says to you, hey, what do you think will determine your world? And you say, oh, really? That's great. Sure. 
it just confirms that the whole world revolves around me. My whole world, certainly, and the outside world, too. It also, it also feeds into a kind of victim grandiosity. It's the same thing. I'm either the victim or I'm, I'm either God or I'm the devil. Right? I either can make the world what it is or I'm responsible for the world. It's like overly indulgent. Too much power. So there's certainly truth to that inner domain, but there's also a, a fuller gestalt that needs to be involved. So is it true that there's an inner Jacob? Yes. Is it true that there's an inner Esau? I mean, certainly those archetypes are there. There's also how it played out in history, and there is all kinds of, the, the complexity of the situation is very powerful. Very powerful. And um, it's really important for us to not lose sight right, of the complexity of the situation, not give in to sim- overly simplistic um, you know, aphorisms about anything. Um, but what do you want to talk about Yaakov and Esau? Do people want to talk about Jacob and Esau instead of talking about Bina? Because I also want to talk about Bina, because that was the next of the Svirot that we did. We did Keter, remember the forehead and the meditation around the forehead and, and humility and Keter is always receiving. Remember, Keter is looking up and looking down simultaneously. No. I'm sorry, Keter is always looking down, excuse me. Chochmah was the next one, looking up and looking down. And you guys know you're really listening, it's great. And... Um, that the meditation on humility and seeing the divine and the other. How many people have been practicing any of these things? Mm-hmm. How many people just remember in the middle of the day, like, oh, I'm going to try to love this person who's standing in front of me because they're in the image of God. People are, wow, that's great. I'm doing it too. I just want to say I'm with you. It's my own, my own practices too. Remember a couple of times today to relax my forehead um, when I wasn't relaxed. Um, so I do want to talk about Bina, which is the next of the spirit. How do you Bina? What's the Bina thing? How do you Bina? What is Bina and how do you do it? But I'm happy to talk about Jacob and Esau too, no, or anything else. <laughs> no, no, so, so that was one thing from Alina. Anybody else have something else that they want to talk about? David Barry. I'll tell you what I'm wrestling with. I'm wrestling with the guilt how Jacob, in quote, stole the blessings from Esau, and that that may be what's causing all the craziness in the world today. If Esau represents not just Rome, but Islam, yeah. some rabbis have been expanding into that, then they're resentful of everything that we have, because it's really theirs. And I'm wrestling with that. In the Bible itself, it's clear that he's okay. He dressed up like him, and, you know, and we all know he was supposed to take it because he's, you know. But I'm wrestling with that. Yeah. So these, these stories are very powerful. Very powerful stories. The Bible is written The Bible is written by by Israel, by Israelites, by Jews. It's it's is our stories. These are our sacred narratives, our sacred stories. It's clearly important to, the, to, the, to those who, who wrote the Bible for us to, to see Jacob as someone who has a, a, an arc in his personality, a character development. Right? In, in, in the Bible itself, even if you're reading the Bible from the perspective of the Jewish people, you can't feel overly sympathetic to Jacob's character in the beginning of the story. 
right? Jacob is, um, you know, he doesn't come off well in a certain way. By the same token, Esau is certainly not a biblical figure that was, in, if you look at the, the full picture of the Bible, Esau as a hunter, hunters in the Bible are not, are not role models. Like, to be a hunter in the Bible, to be described as a hunter in that archetype, in that story, is to tell a story about a relationship between the culture that Israelites were trying to valorize and a culture that Israelites were trying to somewhat to distance themselves from. And Esau becomes the, the um, like whether he lived or not, I'm assuming this is a myth, I'm assuming that there wasn't an Esau or, or, you know, or Jacob, but that these are the stories that the Israelites are telling about their ancestors in a way to describe a kind of political reality and various relationships that were taking place at the time of writing the Bible. Edom was over there, and right, so they had relationships with, 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 with other nations, we're called nations, other kingdoms. And they're trying to describe the essential difference between who we are and our narrative and who you are. And for the Israelites, you know, Jacob is first described as a very cunning, deceiving individual, but in some way also that's his, his strength. He knows how to take what really belongs to him, even if somebody else seems to have it. And he's described as an Ishtam Yoshei Walei, he's a simple guy who is intense, who lives in a tent. You know, good things happen in tents in the Bible. And the fact that, that he's considered a simple, uh, an Ishtam in the description, he's a simple, simple person, and he dwells in tents. It's clear that the story is about, it's about Jacob's development from a tent dweller to someone who can live in a, in a frontal relationship with reality. That's the drama. Right? So, he steals the birthright. It's not really true. It's sold to him. Right? He takes advantage of his brother being hungry and he sells him the birthright. Then he sells the blessings. Now, Let's grant for a moment, for a moment, that um, it's hard to imagine looking at world history and the relationship between the Jews and, and Christians and Islam as being rooted in a, this moment for a number of reasons. One is, <coughs> Arabs don't... I, Arabs and Muslims don't identify themselves with, with the character of Esau. Even if the rabbis schlep a whole you know, slew of, of hated others into the Esau category, it's, it's not clear that, that uh, it's pretty clear actually that they never saw themselves in that way. Number one. Number two is for the, for the for especially for Christians and for, um, and for Muslims, they, they, they venerate the stories of the Bible as God as also divinely inspiring, so they, they think that it was appropriate. In other words, Jacob had a, and Rebecca had a prophecy, right? There was a prophecy that was given at the beginning of the Parsha this week. Rebecca is told one of them will be greater than the other, and she chose which one was going to be greater than the others. And so Rebecca just acted out of that divinely inspired moment where she got a clear message. But I think what's deeper here is I think the, the deeper structure here for me is that 
when religious mythology is seen as absolutely true, right? when people think that the stories in the Bible are absolutely true, that's the beginning of, of a big mess, period. When we look to the Bible to be absolutely true or empirically true or to be telling us history, right? and we actually say, well, it says it in the Bible, therefore, when we, when we approach religious texts the way that we approach scientific texts or mathematical textbooks, and we assume that there's a direct correlation between the story in the Bible or, or what the rabbis said and how it is in reality, without any critical analysis whatsoever, that's, that's a, whole, a whole big mess. It's a big mess. When we abdicate our critical faculties, you have people, I mean, let, let's just give a context here. Okay, let's give a context. Let's say the Jews win. Let's say Kahana, Mayor Kahana, the racist rabbi who, ab, who was an advocate for, for free, you know, for, of, of exchanging all the Arabs in Israel and sending them off to Jordan or some other place, all the Palestinians, claiming that they weren't even Palestinians, no such nation existed, whatever it was. Let's say that the entire land of, of Israel, which is the size of, of like a thumbtack, right? It's not even big, it's like smaller than New Jersey. Let's say, it, you know, it's much smaller than let's say we own, let's say it belonged only to the Jews. Like, who would be happy then? Like, meaning, if you ask me, as someone who doesn't believe in the, in the literal understanding of the Bible, like, I get our connection with that piece of land. I get the history. I get the, 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 the power of it and the power of what it means to me as a Jew and to my family and to Jewish history and to the thousands of, of years and the millions of people who yearn to live in that land. But let's say it was you know, free of anyone who would, who would pose a threat. It's like most Jews in Israel are, are secular. Most Jews have a connection to the land that isn't rooted in the sense of the sacred nature of the land itself. Right? So these, it's a religi- there's a religious war, but it's a, it's a strange religious war for someone who is, like me, religious, but who doesn't believe in the literal meaning of the Bible. I do believe that, that, that God is fully present everywhere, fully present here in this church as, he, as God is outside of this church. So I wouldn't be, you know, I would be happy to see a land where there are no terrorist attacks, but I don't have the same, I don't pray the same way that my ultra-Orthodox brothers and sisters pray when, I, when they say the, the holiness of the land. I don't have the same relationship with it. Like if you ask me if it's even a remote, if one life will be saved by giving up 10 miles of Israel, I would give it up in a heartbeat. I, I don't have, like, I don't have what they have. I don't even have what some of my friends who in, in, over the summer were going to places in Yehuda, what, what's called Judah and Samaria, or Yehuda and Shomron, in various parts of the land, and they can feel that the prophets used to walk there, and I feel that too. But then if you ask me, can I live a life knowing that a group of, a, a group of religious Muslims live on that part of the land, if it saves human life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's the highest value to me is human life. So, it, it's... it's it, so much of the religious war around this is, is essentially coming from a, a structure, a value structure that's, that still sees 
these myths as absolutely operative in the world on, on, a, on a real basis. The Jews are the enemy, or that or the Arabs are the enemy, Muslims are the enemy uh, for their religious doctrine. And I'm not saying that's the fullness of the picture. Again, I said before, it's extremely complex, and there's, there are historical contingencies, right? We need the land of Israel for historical contingencies, not just for religious reasons. We, we, we weren't safe even 60 years ago. And we're still not safe completely in, in places like Paris and, and other places around the world. So I'm not saying that it isn't a very complex issue, but when you ask me, David Barrett asked me a question rooted in the myth of the Bible. He asked me, how do you, is it possible that that original myth is responsible for everything that's, ha- you know, if it's something happening between Jews and the rest of the world, I say, well, only between a certain center of gravity that takes those stories as as mythically empowering. Like, I'll tell you, here's a moment. Here's a moment for me. Like, I'm reading a, I'm reading a letter today. I mean, I was crying all day. But, and I get a letter that a, a, friend of my, a, a friend of mine sends me a letter, forwards me a letter from a, a very well-known um, uh, scholar. She, she's a, a Rebbitzin. She's an, uh, an ultra-Orthodox woman who's a brilliant, brilliant Torah teacher. She lives in Harnoff. She lives in the neighborhood where the attacks took place. And she writes a beautifully a poignant, heartbreaking email about, um, she's related to one of the rabbis that was killed. He's the son-in-law of a friend. And so she's telling me all about, all of, she's telling in the letter all of the different things that happened that were, that were incredible in terms of how people touched each other and held each other and were worth each other and the courage and all these wonderful things. And at the end of the email, she writes to her constituency, just thank God we are not them, with capital T-H-E-M, and that we have the Torah, and we have, right, we have the Torah, and we have Hashem, and, and thank God for that. And she had me until that moment. <laughs> she had me until that moment, because... I mean, I'm just not there. No. I'm, I'm just not, I'm not there because to me, I acknowledge that there are certainly very significant cultural differences between various, there are significant cultural differences. Right? I don't think it's, it's true that, um, I'm not going to go into it because I, I don't want to go down this road. I'm just saying I think there are very significant cultural differences. But I'm not, I don't see that the differences are rooted in an us and them. I think it's rooted in something much more complex. I don't think it's innate. They are this way and we are this way. Because there are plenty of them that I know that I love, and there are plenty of us that I know, and frankly, I'm a little bit scared of. There's a lot of them and us. So I think that obviously, and again, it, it's someone to be forgiven for saying that the day after seeing what she saw. Absolutely. Right? For someone to be that enraged, and for someone to send that out into the world, I, I you know, I know that she's, not, I know that that email is not, I happen to know that's not that not inciting, right? It's not an insightful email with CITE. But like again, it's it's not useful to me. What's useful to me is, as Alina said, there's Jacob and there's Esau, there's Ishmael and there's Yitzchak. There are stories of 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 those who want to make a claim on being the son that inherited the father's love and the mother's love. 
And there are, um, there have been wars about which son is more beloved, which son is more right, which son um, has the truth. And certainly, I don't know that that's what happened yesterday at all. I think yesterday was just not just, yesterday was another unbelievable and unspeakable evil decision, an evil, uh, a moment of deep ignorance and, and deep confusion. So I don't want to root it in that myth, David. So that's that, yeah. Lauren? Something that is so heartbreaking to me um, today in the world, but also when we go back and read these stories in Genesis, is the way in which we raise our children. You know, not only my children, your children, but, you know, our children. And where are the parents? And this idea that Rebecca listened to God and had to fulfill this divine process, this divine promise that she, she chose to do so. Um, and I, you know, that to me isn't at all clear when I when I read the text. Um, you know what she was doing because I think she's so absent <laughs> from the story um, that we don't hear the nitty gritty of the, the childbearing and what the mothers and fathers are doing and telling their kids. Um, but to this day, that it's it seems to go um, be self perpetuated You know, in, in the Kabbalah, Jacob is seen on the side of what's called the side of Kedusha. He's, Jacob is the middle pillar of, of the three. Right? We, wouldn't, we didn't get to Jacob yet. We got to, we did Chesed last, we did Chokhmah rather. And tonight, tonight we're doing Bina, but the, the, Jacob is in the Kabbalistic schema. Jacob is the central pillar who, the, who unifies his grandfather Abraham's energies with his father Isaac's energies. And Jacob becomes the center pillar, meaning Jacob becomes the embodiment of Tishereh, he becomes the embodiment of the Kuchavrihu, the Holy One. Jacob is what's called the full, he has the full array, he's gone through the full cycle and he brings everything and he, he you know, in merits being named, we're named after Jacob, essentially, we're named after Israel. And so Jacob becomes the paragon of wholeness because he comes from a place of, of being Yaakov, but then he has a name change and he's wrestling with the angel and he becomes the, the Merkavai, he becomes like the, the structure in which everything flows forth. He is the, the one who helps um, balance the two extremes of chesed on the one hand and din or gevur of Isaac on the other. So Jacob is, we all want to be a little bit of Jacob. There's a, there's a Jacob in Kabbalah that is, that is the, a model of that we are seeking to embody and to imitate, right? The one who is, learns to be yashar, to be straight, not to be yakov, which means to be crooked. Um, of course, Jacob himself doesn't have the fullness of Jacob's bed, as it were, the fullness of Jacob's life, that he finished his life with no unfinished business, is because of the work that Judah and Joseph do together. So Judah and Joseph become right, the way that Jacob becomes complete. That's why at the end of his life, he's able to bless his children in a way that 
By the way, Abraham doesn't bless his children. And Isaac blesses them in a crooked way. I mean, Isaac, I mean, I think you've spoken of the whole idea that Isaac is totally complicit in this being of Jacob's. That he, 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 he very well knows who, who his sons are, and yet he willfully is deceived. You know, it... You know, if we're going to, again, let's first, let's first stop for a second and say that let's be clear on when we've moved from a one country to another in terms of our paradigms. So one thing is for sure, that anachronistically trying to read the Bible for psychodynamic and, and, dip, and other deeper dimensions is our prerogative, but, it's, but it, let's just be aware that we're not reading it um, in its own context. Right? It's hard to imagine that the biblical author is is using the frames that we're allowed ourselves to use in the 20th and 21st century, which is okay. I just want to say the uh, first thing. Second thing is, so then your question about Rebecca's parenting style, which is a legitimate question, right? The text is very sparse about how Rebecca and, and Isaac parented their children. But one thing we know is, is that, um, is that Isaac is someone who is loved by his father but his father uses him in a way to prove his fealty to God. And then Isaac loves Rebekah because Rebekah replaces Isaac's mother, Sarah. And then we know that Isaac loves Esau because Esau gives him food to eat. There's something about Esau's character that is very attractive to Isaac. Right? You know, Isaac sees in Esau a bit of the other, like the one that I wasn't, right? That I, um, and maybe even a replacement of his brother Ishmael in some ways, the missing brother that unfortunately I didn't spend as much time as I would have wanted to. And Esau has that quality. And Esau knows how, like Esau, as, as the elder son, really knows how to, 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 to make his dad love him. He charms him. He's really, he does what, what Isaac needs him to do. And the Jacob character in the Rebecca, at least the way that Rebecca sees Jacob. Rebecca sees Jacob um, as the one who has the inner intelligence or the inner place of Isaac. Right? Like, that, that he would be the one, that he would be the one who most, most deeply identifies with Isaac's soul. So you can say what you want about Rebecca. It's not clear from the text why she doesn't like Esau, but she loves Jacob. Like she loves Jacob. Now, if you want to, you know, I'm not sure where you want to go with that here in terms of, you know, our modern stories, but You know, the beauty of the Jacob and Esau narrative and the Isaac and Rebecca narrative is, and I hope everybody's not falling asleep yet. It's, you know. The beauty of, of this myth is that it, it speaks to the blindness that parents have vis-a-vis their children. It speaks to um, the deep yearning that children have to be seen by their parents. And of course, Isaac is blind. 
You can't, you can't, be, you can't get better than that. That Isaac is completely blind. And it, it also speaks to um, the way that the false self emerges in, in yearning to placate or to, to, be, to appease the parent. Right? The fact that Jacob has to wear his brother's clothing to be able to receive a blessing is nothing, I think, more poignant than that, that he has to, to wear his brother's clothing in order for his father to touch him. If you look in the text this week, look how many times there's a yearning for touching to take place. And how often the touch, and how the blessing is conveyed through touching. As if you can imagine each child say, just touch me, Dad. Right? I read, I was reading this week, you guys know that I'm on this Bruce Springsteen thing for the last couple of years. I've been like fixated on him, obsessed with him. And I read, uh, David Remnick wrote like a, a ridiculously long article about, about Bruce Springsteen for The New Yorker in 2012. So I was up one night reading it. It's like, I don't know how long it was. It was too long, but it was great. And in it, he quotes Springsteen saying that, in the name of somebody else that I should know, but I don't know, who said that all rock and roll is just one long screaming daddy. It's like the whole thing, just one long screaming daddy, you know? And, and how Bruce was um, talking about his own dad, you know? And how his dad uh, completely didn't get him at all. So, the, I mean, the pathos of that story of that triangle, the, tri the two triangles, the one between Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob, and the one between Isaac, Esau, and Jacob, and then between, of course, right, the, the two parents who are obviously not communicating with each other either, is like the struggle, the struggle when you have twins. And, I mean, the story is just so perfectly balanced. You have these two twins, and they're so radically different. But... Um, in order for them to receive the blessing, they're fighting over the blessing. And it's, it's a funny thing for us, I think coming back to David Barrett's question, it's a funny thing for us who are, who are not taking the myth literally to see children fighting for an infinite blessing, from an infinite blesser. Like, you know, in, in, if God is this infinite being, like the, the, the gerrymandering around, the, the fighting over who's going to get the infinite being's blessing is like a ridiculously silly fight. Like, you know, as if. It's like the, 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 the vision of religious triumphalism is such an affront to the belief in an infinite God. Like the vision of a religious triumphalist, right, that, that, that Judaism will one day be shown to be true, or that Islam will be true, or that the great Hindu, you know, it's like, Really? Is that really? That's, that's your God? Your God? You know, the best that your God could do is create a scenario where only one kid gets the candy and the other kid has to just go home and cry because they didn't get the candy? That, that's your vision? So it's like, you know, it, you know obviously, you know, I just have to say over and over again when these things happen that there is no justification for violence. But, but stories that are rooted in this kind of thinking are, are almost setting up the world to be on fire. It's like, and, and I say to people sometimes, I'm sorry, Ava, I want to get your question, but like, I sometimes say to people when, when I sit with them, you know, I'm not always in this kind of polemical mood. <laughs> you know, so I don't always get into these conversations, but sometimes I'll be sitting with someone and say, so let me get this straight. 
like, I did this last year. I went to, to, to hear, um, you guys all know that on, on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, we were at a church on, on 83rd Street, right? So many of you were there. So I, I had never been there before. So two years ago, I went to hear a preacher talk. I wanted to go to a service and see what it was like at that, at that church. So I went. And it was great. The music was amazing. The people were young. And it was, you know, there was a lot of vitality. And I, it was great. And the preacher got up to speak. And he was like, like an Asian American guy, extremely articulate, spoke for 25, 30 minutes about, about death. And I thought it was great. I thought that could have been a great Kol Nidre sermon. It was great. I went over to him afterwards and it was like, we were standing like this far apart. Abraham Shaw was a great guy. And I started talking to him and I said to him, like, you know, right on, man, who are you reading? We were just sharing notes and I told him who I was. And, and at the end of it, I just couldn't get over how, like, how much of a soul brother he felt like to me. And I said to him, but I heard you guys are evangelical Presbyterians. Um, so do you believe that I'm going to hell? Because <laughs> right now I'm feeling like, like we're in heaven right now. I'm just talking to you. We're just shooting it. And I, I'm quoting, you know, Thomas Merton and you're quoting Rabbi Heschel. And we're just taking on her and we have the same bookshelf. It's all great. I said, but, but do you really think because I haven't accepted Jesus that I'm going to go to hell? And he's like looking at me, he's like, you know, you know what am I going to say? <laughs> like, I'm, like, I'm like, wow. I, like, really? Because there are a couple billion of us who are going to go to hell. Like, how does that work? So, like, we're doing good work in the world, and I'm going to, God willing, live 120 years, and my Rebbe lived 90 years, and blah, 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 and we all did all this great work in the world, and so, but we didn't accept Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, and we didn't come to Christ through, you know, to God through Christ. So, how does that work? And he's like, I can get. And he's like, I can explain it to you. And I'm like, oh, but just, I just don't understand. Like, so God, I was brought up in a Jewish family. And so, what about the? I'm lucky enough because I met you. Because maybe I have a chance of being saved. But what about all those thousands of people who, who have never met you? Like, how does that work for them? And he's like, well, that's why we are evangelical. I said, but you're not going to reach them. Like, how does that work? You know, you gotta. So it's just like, you know, it's the same thing with ultra-Orthodox Jews, like in terms of like, you know, and, and, and these structures of consciousness that are not, in my opinion, like they're not, um, it's, it is a zero-sum game. And that's exactly what comes out of when these things happen, is that those on the right will say, you see, we can't trust the Arabs. We can't trust them. Kahana was right. One guy wrote on my Facebook page, Kahana, Mayor Kahana was right. And we should get rid of all of them. They should, we should kick them out. Let them go somewhere else. And then uh, um, my, there are Muslim people who say, you know, it's in response to, you see what's happening. They, you know, they kill this person, they kill that person. And, and these, these, these groups with these mythic structures just fight over over pointing innate, the innate, they pull the innate card. It's innate. It's, it's embedded, it's in their, you know. And cultural determinism is, is, is equally, um, it's almost as bad as religious determinism. Saying that just because it's in the myth, it has to be that way, is, is, is definitely much more rationally egregious. But, but saying that it's in the culture, is another cop-out, because cultures change. They have to change. So, you know, getting back to Lauren's question about, um, about parenting, about 
uh, Rebecca and uh, her role and you know this is the way it's always been and, and I think that until until we stop um, Back, I want to, I want to, I want to 
I want to take up on what, what Abe was teaching and say that there is no greater accomplishment within the Kabbalah than being able to find all of these energies within yourself, right? Even in more later Kabbalah, even finding, right, what you said, Esav, which is usually Klipa. Esav is usually seen as the Klipa, the shell, Tuma, impurity. But in later Kabbalah, um, in, in, in the, the desire to be more holistic was to recognize that Esav lives in me too, right? And that if I can't find Esav in me, right, then I can't lift it up. So there is the movement in Kabbalah, and again, I want to come back to the Moshe Kodavero in the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the 16th century. But I want to say that in, there is the movement in Kabbalah to try to move from the, the, the destruction of evil to its elevation. The destruction of evil to its elevation. That's the move between old world Kabbalah and then Hasidut. Hasidut didn't want to destroy evil. It wanted to transform it, transmute it. There is this notion that there is evil that is so profoundly distorted that one can't really work with it. That's, that's found in the Kabbalah. Um, but, but our work is really to elevate that which is dark, right, to illuminate it. Now, you know, I just want to say something blasphemous here, which is, or I'm just being honest, and I know this being videotaped, but I don't you know. I mean, the first thing that I thought about, and a lot of, I think a lot of people might have thought about this, was when, when I heard the news yesterday, I thought about Baruch Goldstein. I thought about what happened in the Purim massacre years ago, when a Jew went into Maratha Machpelah, into the cave of, of the patriarchs and matriarchs, and murdered 29 Muslims when they were praying. And I thought to myself, you know, for those who were saying it's us against them, I, I wasn't condoning this, and I still won't condone it. But I also won't, I won't allow my, my intense rejection and condemnation and disgust with this act to a cloud and to, and to obfuscate the vision that these two human, these two terrorists who became, who did something monstrous, right, a couple of days before they did it were just two fathers of young kids. And I don't know what happened. And I refuse, refuse to, to abdicate the, the, that's, that's something that it wasn't a pathology. It's something distorted in their thinking, distorted in their, in their sense, that something, there's something grossly um, um, inhumane that happened, but also something altogether unfortunately human in the way that they were transformed from two people who worked across the street from, these, from this yeshiva into this other thing. And I think that, um, and, I, and, and, and I will say this, is that um, the, the desire for revenge is human. The desire for revenge is human. The desire to lash out is human. The desire to take my pain and inflict it on someone else is human. And, and the desire for retributive justice is also human. It's absolutely human. Um, it just, if we, wanted, if we want more, right, we always have a choice. If we want more death, if we want to continue the cycle, then we can just play along with the cause and effect. Right, what happened, 
right? And then the next cycle, and the next cycle, and there won't, you know, the, the road to more and more violence is paved with, what do you mean? This is just what I'm supposed to do next. And that brings us right now into Bina, and I want to just, uh, I just want to, um, I'll, I'll take your comment, and then I'll bring us into, the, into Bina. You're speaking about, and you're saying, how did these guys get this idea to do this terrible, evil thing? No, no, I don't, not wondering how they got that idea. Uh, or, or where they found such an inhumane thing. Sure. But I see it as, to them, it was either a mitzvah. Right. To them, it was right. the best thing that they could possibly do. It's, it's the, the right. definition of, a friend of mine was telling me, the definition of orthodoxy. And if you want to bring it back to Kabbalah, it's din without the sweetening of chesed and rachmin, which brings you to zitra aver. It's the yeah. worst thing in the world. Yeah. But our orthodox friends will tell us that din is the highest ideal right. that we should strive for, no matter what we have to do. I, listen, I'm not gonna, I'm, I completely agree with you that in the religious culture, there are certainly those... Um, there, there's certainly parts of Islam, and there's ugliness in Islam, um, that are that calls for this kind of uh, action, and it, it can also be found in in Judaism, and there are good reasons why it doesn't act itself out through Jew, in Jewish uh, life, and that's a much more complex conversation about 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 violence and, and murder in the name of God and so on within the both traditions. Um, I think it's also clear that not everyone. Not everyone who is a Muslim believes that what they did, what was done yesterday in the name of uh, Islam, is a mitzvah. In that, if that were the case, given that there are so many billions, there's a, a, a over a billion Muslims, um, if, you know, if, if the vast majority of them thought that killing Jews or, or infidels was a mitzvah, we'd have a, a very non-Orthodox Muslim world, and, uh, and we don't. That's not the case. We see that. You know, again, there are extremist elements, and there are certainly there are people who use the Quran and use uh, elements within the Quran that are there in order to further their own distorted perspectives. It all becomes politicized, and these people are a part of it, and people suffer. There's no doubt about it. But we we have the responsibility. All of us have the responsibility um, uh, to be. Um, to elevate and to and to and to, and to not get to not be caught up in the cycle, right? To not be caught up in the cycle. So that's in our tradition. That's called tshuva, or returning to God. The name of it, it the sphere is called bina. Bina. Bina is if this if keter is the highest, most refined of the svirot, chokhmah is into is. What we said yesterday, the energy of Bokhma is moving in both directions. It's a point, it's a point of intuition. But Bina is the energy of returning. So let me ask you a question. Um, so what's Bina? Bina is called the, the supernal mother. Bina is called the, the great mother, the Bina. Right? It is associated with, with God bless you, with Jubilee year, with Yovel. Bina it means to understand. Right? It's associated with words and language. The Bina mind, Bina mind is the mind that is receptive to the breaking of a cycle and that gets back up on 
Um, Binamai is the interruption of a pattern. Binamai is the returning to a primal place where everything is possible, where one has radical free choice. Binamai is extricating oneself from any given um, cause, causal chain that seems like everything must be as it is. That's Bina. Bina is freedom in the Kabbalah. Right? To meditate on Bina is to meditate on your own radical freedom. The freedom to say that I am not, um, there is no compulsion, there is no, uh, there is no factor, whether it is nature or nurture, that is compelling me in any given moment to have to be exactly as I was. That's what Bina is. Bina is a, is a fancy term for self-transformation and transformation itself. Which is why we reject, we have to reject, the, the, the seeming simple understanding of the myth of Jacob and Esau, because it would seem that neither one of them had a choice about who they were going to become. It seems like the whole purpose of that story is actually to say destiny is stronger than your than action in some way. At least the beginning of the story. And it may be Jacob, in a sense, right? Maybe in some way Jacob's stealing the birthright is a way of saying that you can you can outsmart destiny. With your creativity, your ingenuity, your craftiness. Right? You don't have to be. Right? Jacob is trying on different clothing, trying to see if he can be more like the one who's deserving of blessing. So there's no more important religious doctrine than the doctrine that you are free. That's the most important religious doctrine, period. Does that make sense? No, I'm not, no. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why, does it, why am I saying it? David, why do I say that? Yeah, I just feel it. I don't know. You feel it? <laughs> what does it mean you feel it? What do you feel? You feel it in your, in your, in your heart? What are you free? What does that mean? You're free to be you and free to be me? What does it mean? What does it mean when religious leaders, Moses, who says, you can choose life. Moses, who says, you can return from any land that you've been dispersed to, and uses the word tshuva, that you can return. The word bina, which is mother. What does it mean that when religious come along and say, you're free? Eli, what does it mean you're free? You have a choice. You have a choice? What do you mean? You have a choice. How to perceive. So perception is in your hands. So that one, one choice, one slight shifting of an angle on a causal vector, right? one small movement to the right, to the left, one degree will now borrow from the law of, deter like of causal determinism and set a new course. In other words, if you believe in, in, in determinism, like one effect follows a cause, right? You do one thing, you plant a seed, it'll bring forth fruit, whatever it is. But if you, you also believe in radical freedom means that even if, right, if, even if there are so many things that you have no choice over, ultimately, though, you have the choice to shift slightly. And in shifting slightly, you change the complete trajectory of a given pattern, of a given moment, completely. For good, and maybe sometimes not for good. You know, this young Druzy soldier, this police officer, this hero yesterday, do people know about him? Is he done? 
30 years old. He married, um, a couple of years ago, he married, uh, two years ago, he married his wife. And four months ago, they had, uh, he had a baby girl. And yesterday, at 7 o'clock, he got the call that there was something happening in, in that shul, in Harnauf, in that synagogue. And he, he, and he, he went. He made, a, 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 he made a decision. He was free to go. He could have gone in a different direction. He was free to, to decide whether to walk into that shul or not. I know it sounds it's, it's horrible to think about. But he became a hero in that moment. He chose. He chose to go protect those, those people. And I want to say that, that I also say that that's ultimately why we believe, because we believe in freedom, we can ultimately blame those terrorists. If we didn't believe in freedom, then we couldn't blame the, the terrorists. We could just say, oh, what do you mean? They're just a bundle of cultural conditions and religious conditions and so many different things. But no, we said that ultimately they could have chosen not to do that. They could have, and they didn't. So Bina means that what was doesn't have to be what is or will be. That's what Bina means. Bina means that what was doesn't have to be what is and what will be. Bina is, is the ultimate affirmation of, um, of the triumph of human will over, over, I guess, over fate. And the Ramak says that you should spend a large part of your day thinking about returning. I keep thinking, you know, there was this thing, there's a thing that's out now that's, uh, that works with the, with, an, with the Apple operating system called tiles. Everybody see these things? They're kind of like, you've seen tiles, right? I bought a couple of these. They're like the, this big. It's like a little, it's a little, literally it's a little tile with a little circle for like a key. And you can put them onto various things that you lose frequently, like keys, my glasses. And guess what? It has a tracking system so that if you lose it or you don't know where it is, it'll show up on your phone. It's like a little tile with a tracker on it, you know? It's crazy. So I always, I think, I wish that I, wish that I had tiles for my soul. You know, so like when I get lost, I get fubbungeon, I can have like a little thing that be like, it'll pop up and be like, well, you are way out. You know, you know why not? Like, like, and like there are, like, Religious practices are tiles for the lost soul, <laughs> right? Don't we have, though? We just don't. We do. We do. We, like you said, it's yeah. so obvious. We're not looking at what's so. It's a, we have tiles. We just not listen. We, we don't hear them, or 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 the truth is, you know. We know when we're going. It's com- down it's. The it, I know. I, you know. We do know. And we have to check in though, because if we don't check in, we well, can go. Well, like you said, we got to start listening with integrity. We got to listen, and that's what Bina is always connected to. Bina is always connected in Judaism with hearing, with listening. If you listen, if you listen, if you listen, if you listen. You have to turn it on, though. Yeah. <laughs> Pile is always on. You just have to have the operating system. The phone is going to be on. You have to have the willingness to look. First of all, you have to know that it's lost. You know the Baal Shem Tov said, the Baal Shem Tov said, when I say the Baal Shem Tov, people know who the Baal Shem Tov is? Founder of the Hasidic movement, a great saint, a great avatar. He was really an enlightened being. And the Baal Shem Tov said that the greatest curse in the Torah is when God says that on that day, 
I will hide, I will certainly hide. A double hiding will take place, a double concealment. A double concealment. It's in, the, it's in one of the curses in the Bible. God says, on that day, you will be cursed, and I will, I will doubly hide my face. Haster, astir, panai. So the Baal said, you know, you know what the worst thing is? If you're playing a game of hide-and-seek with, with a kid, and he said, okay, now it's my turn to go hide, and you go and hide, and you wait one minute, two minutes, three minutes, ten minutes, half hour, and you're thinking, why? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> you know, I was just, I said, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go hide. you got to come get me. And then you come out, and you see, like, the kid, you know, playing a video game, whatever. <laughs> and the kid says, you know, he said, what's going on? We're playing hide-and-seek, and the kid says, Oh, I, 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 I didn't even know you, you were hiding. I forgot. And the Baal Shem Tov said, it's one thing when you're hiding and someone's looking for you and they can't find you, right? But it's another thing, he says, when, when you're hiding and no one's even looking for you. He said, that's the curse that God said. There'll come a time, he said, when nobody's going to even look. It's like, you won't even know you're lost. Done. Like, I'll tell you something, show you Everything is on recording now, so I can't, I don't care, what do I care? So, <laughs> seriously, well, who cares? So I'm a spiritual gangster. I went to, like, an event last night, like, you know, and it was, like, it was at the Waldorf. And, um, and it was with a, it was it, with a lot of people from a, from a world that I'm not usually in. Let's put it that way. And I just was thinking to myself, you know, I was thinking a lot about what the Baal Shem Tov said about when, when we get to a place where we're so, and this is the danger of kind of materialism, is that we replace God with comfort. Like we just want everything to be the right temperature. And not too far away from us so we don't have to reach for it. It's like George Carlin's old adage, it's great to have a remote control for the TV, but where's the remote for the remote? <laughs> right, because you don't know where the remote is and you're sitting there and you're in your leisure comfort place and all you want is, like the greatest suffering in your life is, I can't reach the remote or find it. It's like we live, and this is the danger of, of the particular hiding that, God, that, that, that our generation struggles with, is, is replacing, like, you know, creature comforts for, for that hunger for something much deeper that creature comforts can't. Like, we don't want to be comfortable in that way. We want to be, we want to be located. It's different. It's like, what did, if you're lost, does it really matter if you're lost in a really big condo somewhere and you're lost? Like, you're in some, you know, somebody sets you up somewhere where nobody can find you, and you're all by yourself. Is that like the, the vision for modern man and modern woman? Like you're all set up. You got your condo. You got your. You got all of your things, but you're completely lost. Nobody knows how to find you, and you in fact don't even think you're lost. But you're completely lost. But you're comfortable. You're comfortably lost. It's like, you know, Heschel's adage that that good prayer and good religion are supposed to make the comfortable uncomfortable and the uncomfortable comfortable. It's like, so Bina is, is home. It's returning home. 
but it's, it's a sense of, of I'm lost and I have to come back. Okay, I got lost, I'm coming back. I got lost, I'm coming back. So we train the soul, because, but, but, but here's, here's the thing, is that the soul has to be, know where it's home, so that it knows when it's lost. If you've never tasted home, if you've never tasted what it feels like to be, to be in, in a place of, of spiritual alignment, then you, you might not feel it when you're out of alignment. Sometimes the worst thing you can do to somebody is actually give them a taste of their freedom and then put them back in prison. Because before they knew they were free, they were like, oh, this is just, I, just, I've been going, I just grew up in a prison. It's like a friend of mine, a friend of mine was talking to me today, and he said, he told me that he worked as a rabbi, he was working with, with a kid who lost his father when he was 13. And the kid now is like 40. He, he was working with a kid who lost his father. He's working with an adult who lost his father when he was 13. Now he's 45 years old, let's say 46. And my rabbi friend said, that when he talks to this person and asks them about what his image of, his, of that loss is, he gave him a, a, a triptych. He gave him like three images. And the image that arose for, for this guy was a tree and, and, a, and a fence. A tree and a fence that are so close together that the tree now is completely grown through the fence. And, when he, and he said, it's three images for me, three questions. Like, the fence as initially blocking the growth of the tree. That was stage one. And then stage two, he said, when I lost my father, was that the, the fence was, was supporting, like, the growth of the tree and giving it a sense of a boundary and helping it grow. So it wasn't as, it didn't feel as constricting. And then ultimately, he said, the tree and and the fence are interwoven together. They're just completely woven together. The tree and the metal are, the, you know, are interwoven, and he doesn't know where the aliveness is and where the, the fence is. And you know, if someone grows up and they never have that fence, right? they never have that loss, you know, they have a sense of what that is. If you grow up in a world where, where all you have is fence, you know, Giving someone a taste of, a, of freedom can be, can be extremely important for them, a sense of aliveness that they can then yearn for. But it can also be extremely debilitating to go back into that world where, where you don't have that freedom. But ultimately, you know, Bina doesn't work if we don't have a home base, if we don't have a, a, a decent, like an innate sense or some experience of that freedom that we can return to so that we know when we're off, right? Now, um, I'm going to say that, that, all right, I'm done. I mean, I, there's so much more to say. It's like, like, how can you talk about how can I talk about that, that place? Like a lot of us who are here for the prayer service, that place that you feel when you feel rooted, you feel connected, right? But if you don't have larger circles, if we don't live within much larger, broader circles of awareness and broader circles of development, 
then we really don't know if our little home is, we don't know how developed our home is, how located it is. It can be lost at home. So if you ask me, and I'm going to be very judgmental now, if you ask me if someone who believes that Christ will come one day and judge me, David English being a, being a rabbi, being a Jew, um, and I will ultimately pay the price for my erroneous and um, you know, heretical beliefs. If you ask me if that person, if they touch home, and that home is in a, in a, in a, you know, is in a place where the world is divided between the saved ones and the ones who aren't saved, I'd say that that person isn't. That person is, is not home. In other words. You guys are, the, are the, the, the growing edge of human evolution, in my opinion. <laughs> in, in, other words, in other words, you are lucky enough to have been born, for whatever reason, to have been incarnated into a generation that is aware of the, of the dangers of triumphalist religious beliefs. You are lucky enough to live in a world where pluralism and multiculturalism are the the acceptable levels of development. In other words, you, are, you don't think homosexuals are going to burn for their love. You don't think that, I think most of you don't think, I don't know, most of you don't think that God has a team and that God's on one side versus another. Most of you don't think, right, that, um, that, it, that the world is ours to completely, you know, the resources. Most of you don't think. So, so in some ways, you know, you, our challenge is to be at home in the traditions without losing our home in the multiculturalism. Our challenge is to be rooted in our, in our hearts and in our tradition, but not lose sight of the fact that it's a story. It's our story, but it's not the only story, and it isn't the true story. Right? It isn't the true story. We don't have the true story. Sorry. But, but who cares? Since when do stories have to be true? Science has to be true. Stories have to be truthful. And there's a difference. Stories have to speak to the human condition. They have to speak to our historical reality. They have to speak to the human possibility. They have to give you hope. They have to give you inspiration. Stories don't have to be... Right? It's not a YouTube video. Like, there's no YouTube video of Esau and Jacob exchanging the, the lentil soup. Right? There's no one that's going to play back, you know, and for the jurors, um, here's Esau, um, you know, eating the soup that I prepared for him and that he sold, and there's the right, um, there's the blessing that he wrote, uh, signed away with me. So, so, Bina for all of you is a little bit easier in some ways. I hate to say it. Call me um, a fascist, but it's okay. Look, no, no, Lena, look. I just want to say quickly that I think much of being lost is an inability to see the suffering of other people. I mean, you're talking, you know, talking tonight about Rebecca and Jacob and, and, and so I mean, so it seems that Rebecca can't see the suffering of, 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 her, of her own child. And, and, and people who would think about retribution in Israel, although it's under, it would be understandable, can't, can't look at the suffering of, of, of others. Outside and inside. Now, I just want to read some of you before, before you'll say that we didn't learn any text tonight. And if you don't have a text, 
just list some of this. If you do have a text, it's on page 87 and 88. I want to read to you in the Hebrew and then read to you in the, in, in the English as well the power of this 16th century Kabbalist living in Tzvat, about what he says about Bina. Okay? And then we'll call it a night. And then uh, we'll be on our way to our Bina homes. Okay? On page 87 and, eight, uh, and 88. Okay? Since nobody's reading the Hebrew, I'm not going to read the Hebrew. It's beautiful, trust me, but let's do the English. How should you train yourself with Bina? By, by returning to God, nothing is more important, for this corrects every flaw. As Bina, or understanding, sweetens all powers of judgment, all of Din, neutralizing their bitterness, so should you return to God and correct each flaw. If you meditate on returning every day, you stimulate Bina to illumine each day. That means that when you log on to the Bina inside of you, it sends a signal to the supernal Bina in the world. So if you have a moment, let's say you're like a lawyer. Let's say. <laughs> you know, let's say you're a lawyer. Let's say you, you, know, you do law, which is all about din. Law is din. Let's say you're a big lawyer. And like, you know, you're, really, you know, you're sitting at your desk and the emails are coming in out of your tuchus, and the, the, the phone calls are coming off the hook. And, uh, and you have a moment in the midst of your craziness, and you say to yourself, i got to breathe. And you take a deep breath. And as you breathe, you know, your, your eyes soften, your brow softens, the energy in your head and in somewhat of the energy of combativeness that is kind of you're required to, to wear, it softens, your heart softens, you think of your teacher of Shlomo, you, teach of your te you think of your teacher of Zalman, you think of Swami Muktananda, you think of an illuminated being, you think of the love for a child, something in you lightens your, your the smallness of the day, you're in a place of Bina, of Bina returning to God, whatever that means, returning to the source. In that moment, in your office, at that moment, you sent a Bina signal out into the world. And your Bina signal is hitting the great, great Bina, as it were. It's as if there is, in, in his mind, there is a repository of Bina that your Bina, like the, the, like the sucking child, who is able by its presence to help the mother bring the milk down from her breast. There is a reciprocal relation between your bina ing and the bina in the world. You incline the world in that moment towards greater bina. So if somebody would say, what did you just do? I said, I took a breath. But really, you brought more compassion into your own heart and into the world. Right? So that's his belief. Right? You might believe that. It might, you might not. I believe it. Um, I believe it very strongly, that at the moment when you, when your consciousness shifts, and this is where the secret is right, we started with that, we'll end with that. The secret is right because when you do that, because you are not separate from that. You aren't separate from that. You are a part of it. It's not as if, it's, there is this thing. You just brought more being into the world just by being a lawyer and just making things sweeter. So this is what he says. 
Now, I wanted to get to this line. Listen to this line. If you came here tonight to hear this one line, Dayenu. Every day, you meditate on returning every day, stimulate Bina to illumine each day. In consequence, all of your days join in returning. That is, you integrate yourself within Bina, who is called returning. Each day of your life is adorned with the mystery of supernal return. And do not say, this is the line, so take this line with you, put it up in your kitchen, put it on your, there are no screensavers anymore, but when there were, put it somewhere. Do not say that returning is good only for the holy portion within you, but also the evil portion too is sweetened in the matter of this quality. Do not think that because you incline towards evil there is no remedy. That's false. If you do well rooting yourself in returning, you can ascend there through the goodness rooted there. For the root of every supernal bitterness is, a, is sweet. You can enter through this root and make yourself good. Can you tell every kid that? Don't think that you're returning only because you had you know, straight A's on your report card. But in, in this moment of deep connection, you should include all of those things in you that, that aren't so yummy, aren't so kosher, not all your best qualities. There's room in God's womb for everything that you are. That should be a line there in, your, in your, one of your songs. There's room in God's womb for everything you are. I don't know. I've got to sing that song. There is room in God's womb for everything you are. You know, there is the... the um, he's essentially, as a teacher, as a father, as a, as a mystic, he's saying that if you practice sweetening your life by returning to the root then it will have a deep impact on, on all of your habits and all of the things in your life that are, are difficult. And we can feel that too. Like if you just take, just right now, if you just sit right here, just take, take one hand and put it on your chest and the other hand on your belly. And, and as you're breathing, breathe into both hands. So I want everybody here to bring in to your breath, breathe in your laziness. And I mean it, really. I want, I want everybody to say in your own heart, wow, I can really be lazy. Don't forgive it. Just breathe it in. I can really be selfish. feel this. I want you to feel in your, deep in your belly, underneath your belly, like right where 
the core of you, if there is a goodness. And I want you to breathe from that place through your hands. So bring it up through the body, up through the hands. So inhale, pull it up, pull the goodness up, and then exhale. And God is my source. mystery of creation that brought me forth after millions of years of evolution has brought me to this moment with all of it, all of it I'm returning to the roots and breathing in So with that, I want us to rise up for the Morris College.